blessed, filled up, overflowing. Wow. One heck of a day. Already. This is great. We still have so much more to go. This gentleman is no stranger to our center. He's part of our family, and I just love him to pieces. His energy, his love, his zest for life is just so full. Uh, he is very involved. He's a Buddhist monk, and he's very, very involved in his community. And there's some things that I didn't quite know or I didn't realize. He's, he is a volunteer at the state prison. I'll give you kudos for that. A juvenile hall, the police department, the medical center, and university campus. Plus, I know you're probably doing a thousand other things at one time because I know this gentleman works very, very hard. It is my honor and my pleasure to introduce to you Kusla Bikshu. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm going to share my journey with you. And what I'm hoping will happen is it will stimulate you. It will make you smile. It might even make you think a little bit about, about what it means to be a human being. Because my journey is about discovering that, that part of me that's, that's human. Who am I, and what do I need to do? The title of the talk was sort of a long title, and, um, but boiled right down, it was The Reluctant Bodhisattva. The Reluctant Bodhisattva. Now, let me explain to you what a bodhisattva is if you don't know. A bodhisattva is someone who decides to give their life over to others. Selfless service until all sentient beings are saved. Saved from what? Saved from suffering. A bodhisattva vow that's taken in Buddhism is a many-lifetime proposition. It's not just one lifetime. So we sort of dedicate ourselves to being reborn again and again as a human being. So we'll have an opportunity to be of service. Now, I didn't want to be a bodhisattva because that sounded like a lot of hard work to me. <laughs> I wanted to be an arahant. Now, the arahant is someone who finds the teachings of the Buddha, who practices the teachings of the Buddha, who realizes the teachings of the Buddha, and ends their suffering, ends their karma, and ends all future rebirths. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> I wanted to have this as my last lifetime. Now, this feels like my very first lifetime, but according to Buddhism, I have probably done this before. And some of us have probably had relationships before. We might have been brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, uncles and aunts. If you're a Christian, this is probably your first time here. Welcome. <laughs> so 
So my goal was to be an arhant, and I became ordained in 1994 as a novice monk. And to be honest with you, I didn't know what a Buddhist monk was supposed to do living in Los Angeles. Was I supposed to meditate? Was I supposed to read these lengthy, dry texts all about Buddhism and the philosophy? Was I supposed to be wise and charming? Was I supposed to be silent? What was I supposed to do? Well, what I did was I answered the phone, which was, which was my f- first problem. And on, and on that phone was Deacon Szymanski. And he was a Catholic chaplain at L.A. County State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California. And he said, Reverend Kusla, there was an article in the newspaper a couple weeks ago on you. And I said, yes, thank you. Have you ever thought about being a volunteer in a state prison? (laughs) Because I have some Buddhist prisoners up here. And I said, you have Buddhist prisoners? Because, to be honest with you, everything I read about Buddhism didn't lead me to believe we went to prison. He said, he said, yes, I have quite a few, and I really don't know what to say to them. Would you be willing to come up maybe once a week and just work with the Buddhist prisoners? And I said, well, how far away is Lancaster? Because I, I only have a motorcycle. And he said, well, it's only about an hour and a half away. But what he didn't say was it was upper desert. And, and if you're on a motorcycle going to the upper desert, it's always hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and the wind never stops blowing. You change lanes unexpectedly. But, but I made a year-long commitment. I said, yes, I will, I will go up there for one year and see what I can do. And I had a lengthy background check. They said it was okay for me to be there. (laughs) And leave. (laughs) And, And what I didn't know until the first day was that you can't bring a whole lot in with you to the prison. So here I am on my motorcycle with my leather jacket and my helmet, and I have a backpack. And they say, but you can't take that stuff into the prison. I said, really? Yes, yes, no, no, because they could take it from you and they could pretend to be you and they could leave and you'd be here and, oh, it'd be terrible. (laughs) So you have to leave that stuff on your motorcycle. Well, if you've ever ridden a motorcycle, we we don't have trunks. (laughs) And so now in the parking lot was this motorcycle with a backpack hanging from one of the handlebars and a jacket from the other and a helmet resting on the seat. And then to get into the prison, I had to give up all my money and my change and anything in my pocket that might be sharp and used as a weapon. So now I'm going through these gates. They're opening and closing. They've given me this plastic thing that looks like a garage door opener with a button. And they say to me, if something goes down, press the button. We'll come and save you. (laughs) I said, thank you very much. So now I meet my prisoners. And what a variety of prisoners I had. We had ethnic Buddhists who didn't speak any English at all, and I only speak English. We had people that were interested in yoga and meditation and Buddhism. So I had a variety of people to work with. 
One of the things I decided to do was not ask them why they're there. I didn't want that to, to sort of make my relationship with them any harder than it already was. But I just was very open. And I said, hi, how are you? How's it going today? Well, that's sort of a stupid question to ask in prison. <laughs> but that's all I could come up with. And we started. And we started to have conversations about Buddhism. We started to have conversations about suffering. And then we were able to get a place to do some meditation. And we got these blankets that they had and rolled them up, and those were our cushions. They said, could you get some books for us? We'd like some books on Buddhism. I said, I'd be glad to. And I talked to some of the centers in Los Angeles, and we were lucky enough to get a whole lot of books, and they were sent up to the chapel at the state prison. Well, when I got up there the next week, none of them were there. The books were all gone. And I said, where'd all the books go? Well, you know, this is not only a Buddhist chapel. This is a Muslim chapel. This is an American Indian chapel. This is a Christian chapel. This is a Jewish chapel. And I think some of those people were sort of confused about why Buddhist books are in their chapel. And I went, well, that's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? So I asked one of the prisoners, would you be willing to be the librarian? And we'll put the books in your cell. And that way there won't be any problem with the books ending up missing. He said, I'd be happy to, and I'll keep track of where they go and when they come back. So we started a Buddhist library with a Buddhist librarian in his cell, and it worked really good. And then they wanted some audio Dharma talks. And I said, oh, I can get some of those. There are a lot of really good audio Dharma talks. I'll have them sent to the chapel. <laughs> well, when we got to the chapel and started to listen to the audio Dharma talks, we found some wonderful Christian songs on there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe we need to put the tapes in with the books. Because, because I see now that not everybody is open to Buddhism. Not everybody understands Buddhism. And we need to be careful in how we present Buddhism, I said to myself. So I said, does anybody know what Buddhism is about in my little group? And some thought it was about meditation, and some thought it was about enlightenment. I said, well, really, meditation is about the end of suffering. Why do human, why do human beings suffer? And, and how can we end that suffering? The Buddha talked for 45 years on that topic. So I realized that everybody there was suffering. And this was a really important message that I was bringing to them, how to end their suffering, even in prison, how to make their prison cell their monastery. They actually eat better than a lot of Buddhist monks. Now, they won't admit it, but, but they get three meals a day. A lot of Buddhist monks maybe get one meal a day. They get free medical care. A lot of Buddhist monks don't have access to medical care. So this is a wonderful opportunity, I said to them, to find their skillfulness, to find their goodness. And I was able to find other volunteers to help me. And I was up there for a year, and I learned a lot about the human condition. But one of the stories that comes to mind about this experience was the fact that they wanted incense because they wanted to burn incense during meditation. And again, I said, no problem. And, and I was able to find over 10 
thousand sticks of incense, which I brought up personally and handed out to all the prisoners. And two weeks later, they said to me, can you bring us some more incense? (laughs) And I said, but I brought two, I brought 10,000 sticks. What happened? We sold it. (laughs) And we need more. And I'm thinking, and I'm the supplier. (laughs) So the underground economy in prison is alive and well. (laughs) After being up there for a year, I got another phone call. Mr. Noy Russell, Central Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles. Reverend Kusla, could you come and give a talk on Buddhism? I've been reading books on Buddhism, and I think... The young people here would be really interested to hear you speak on Buddhism. And I said, well, are there any Buddhists down there? And he said, you know, I haven't found any yet. (laughs) But I still think they would be interested. So I went through another background check and ended up giving a presentation in the high-risk offenders unit in downtown Juvenile Hall. And these were young men who had killed people, who had stolen vehicles, who had raped people. These were young men who were probably going to go to prison after they got out of juvenile hall. And that's a tough audience. And I wasn't sure how I was going to approach them. What could I say that would make them interested in Buddhism? And I walked in, and I looked around the room, and I felt immediately comfortable. Everybody there had my hair cut. So I said, okay, now I can work with this. So now I asked a question. I said, is there anybody in the room suffering? Could you just raise your hand? Is anybody here suffering? And I, I was, had my fingers crossed behind my robes, and one hand went up, and then another hand went up, and then another hand went up. And I knew I had an audience now. And I said to them, let me tell you about suffering. Let me tell you what I understand about suffering, that suffering is optional. Pain isn't. And they said, oh, that is so cool. Suffering's optional. Okay. Well, what is suffering, Reverend Kusla? Can you describe that for us? Can you define suffering? I said, oh, of course, of course. I'd be glad to. This comes from a seventh grader named Esmeralda. I was giving a talk in her class in Glendale, California, and after my presentation, she raised her hand, Reverend Kusla, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. And I said, oh, Esmeralda, how did you know? You're in seventh grade. How did you know? Well, I don't know. It just came to me. (laughs) I said, that's exactly right. Suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. And Buddhism is about coming to a profound acceptance of the way things are. Wow. So I started to talk, and I went back for five years, once a week, to Central Juvenile Hall. And I learned so much from the young people, because the young people had a real difficult time being young in downtown Los Angeles. A lot of them were defending their neighborhoods. A lot of them were illiterate. A lot of them had allegiances to people that perhaps we wouldn't have allegiance to. And, and they were confused. I didn't meet an evil kid there. Not one. What I, met, what I met were a lot of unskillful children. A lot of children that needed some new skills because they were creating more suffering rather than less suffering. And that's why community decided to give them a time out. 
And so we need you to think about what you're doing and what you're saying. And volunteers came to Juvenile Hall every week to give all these children new skills. It's wonderful to see them. And I remember one of the Catholic volunteers came up to me and said, Hi, hi, I'm, I'm from the Catholic Church. I'm a volunteer. And, and who are you? I said, Oh, I'm Reverend Kusla. I'm a Buddhist. Proudly, I said that. And he said to me, But are there any Buddhists here? And I said, Well, no, I haven't found any yet. <laughs> And then he said to me, well, then, why are you here? And to be honest with you, I was stuck. I, I was here because I was invited, but why did I keep going back? I said, well, I'm here because because the children are suffering. And he said, I'm here for that, too. So we connected that day in a very special way, even though we were going to different units that day. Let me share an experience of teaching young people to meditate. Very difficult to teach young people, especially young men, especially masculine young men. (laughs) You know, and and now I'm going to ask them to sit quietly and do nothing and just be good. You know, it's not going to go over very well. So I had to come up with something. I had to create something that would inspire them, that would get them involved in the process of meditation. And I said to them, Do you know who the first meditators in the world were? And they said, no, who were they? I said, they were the hunters. Whoa, hey, I like that. But why did hunters need to meditate? I said, well, it works sort of like this. Back in the old days when they had hunters and gatherers, all the women would be back at the village and they'd be cooking and cleaning and taking care of all the children and the men. And the men would go out to hunt, and the elders would get the young lads and train them in the art of hunting. And the elders would say to the young boys, sometimes you have to sit for a really long time and not move, because if you move, you scare everything away. So you have to sit so still. And when we sit still, we watch our breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. So we're going to watch our breath today, and we're going to be hunters. But we're not going to be hunting anything on the outside today. We're going to be hunting something on the inside. Where do we live? Who are we? And so that's how it started. Now, to be honest with you, I enticed them, telling them that we would also be offering pizza for lunch. (laughs) So that may have had more to do with it than being a hunter. They have girls at Juvenile Hall, and they have not very many girls at Juvenile Hall, 20, 30, 40 out of the five or 600. And they're kept secluded on the premises. They're sort of in the corner. And, and because, you know, there are so many more boys and girls, and it's not good to have boys and girls mixing at Juvenile Hall. <laughs> so I was asked to go speak to the girls one night, and it was remarkable what they had done to their unit. It was like a big bedroom, and they had teddy bears and pictures and stuff. Much different than the guys. Nothing on the wall, you know? And so we all sat around in a big circle, and I was getting to know everybody. And I asked this one girl. She was probably 15. And, and I said to her, what do you miss most about being in juvenile hall? And she thought for a minute and said, I think the thing I miss most is carbonation. I haven't had a Coke in weeks. It's driving me crazy. 
Now, here was someone who was away from home, away from parents and friends, and yet carbonation seemed to be the biggest problem. Isn't that interesting? So you never know what you're going to come in contact with. The youngest boy I saw, he was eight years old, and he was staying in the infirmary because they didn't want him in general population, and he had burned down somebody's house. And his parents didn't want him back because they thought he might burn down their house. So they were trying to figure out what to do with him. Juvenile Hall is a holding facility. When juveniles get arrested, they go to Juvenile Hall. When they're in court, they stay at Juvenile Hall. But if they're going to be involved in the process for any length of time, they're usually sent to camps on the, uh, in the outlying areas of, of Los Angeles. So, so there's a big turnover, and there's always somebody new to talk to. But what a wonderful experience I had, and how much did I learn about how difficult it is to be a human being, whether you're old or young. Well, during this period of time, I was asked to, to be a, a, a chaplain at UCLA and start a Buddhist club for the students. The chaplain that was there um, had to leave. She had other things she needed to do and asked if I would take over and be a chaplain. I said, yeah, I'd be sort of interesting to see what it's like on campus. So I went there, and, and uh, it took a couple years to get a Buddhist club together, but it's alive and well right now. We meet every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. The Catholics are really nice to us because we're both monastic traditions and because in the 60s there was something called the Second Vatican Council where the bishop said Buddhism was okay. <laughs> and, and that is so cool. So... In Los Angeles, we've had a Buddhist-Catholic dialogue now since 1989, and I've been part of that since the mid-90s. And it's, it's been a wonderful experience, and I've been able to uh, turn that relationship into teaching an extension class at Loyola Marymount University, which is a Catholic university. So uh, sometimes I think of myself as the professor, <laughs> and sometimes just another volunteer, you know? On campus, uh, somebody heard I was there, and I was invited to join the Spiritual Care Committee at the UCLA Medical Center. And my job there is to give presentations to new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues, because a lot of the chaplains are Christian, Jewish, one Muslim, but no Buddhists. And they may have had something on Buddhism in a comparative religions class, but it was most likely a long time ago. So I go there to remind them that Buddhism is a bit different, and when we get sick, we have different priorities, maybe, and when we die, we have different priorities for sure. And so my job is to sort of enlighten them, pardon the expression. While I, uh, a year or so ago, I was asked to give a presentation to chaplains at City of Hope. And, you know, I like giving presentations because it allows me to be big, you know, and fill a room and be animated and, and share and smile. And so I, I sort of like it. I hate to say it, but I sort of like it. And I went there and I gave this presentation and, and all the chaplains said, wow, I didn't know that about Buddhism and da, da, da. And then one of the chaplains who was actually working at the City of Hope said, would you mind coming with me? There's a, there's a girl here and, <clears throat> and she's 24 and she's going to die. She's, uh, she has about two months to live. And pardon me if I uh, feel emotional about this. And, and she just found Buddhism, and she had some questions she wanted to ask. And I said to myself, oh, I have so many answers. 
I'd be happy to go talk to her, you know. And so we were walking across the campus of City of Hope, and, and I had to ask her, I said, do they call us City of Hope because this is their last hope? And she said, yeah, sometimes this is their last hope. And, and if it doesn't work here, then they die. And so I said, wow, that's pretty heavy stuff, because I just came to give a presentation. And now I'm going to have to face the reality of the impermanence of life. So I walk into this room where this woman of 24 is staying with her mother. And she has a, her mom has a little uh, cot in the corner. And I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. And my, my breath was taken away. And I said, oh, oh what is this? Why? And, and I realized it's because I was in the present moment. I was stuck in the present moment. In this room, there was no past or future. It was just the now. And, and my whole idea of what I was going to say dealt with past and future. My whole reason for being at the City Hope that day was rooted in past and future. And now I was in the present moment experience of my life and their life. And I didn't have one thing to say. Not one thing. So I listened. <sighs> what a teaching that was. That in circumstances like this, we don't need to say a whole lot. We just need to create a relationship with a person and listen. What do they need to hear? Not what do I need to say? And two months later, she was dead. She had died. But I learned a lot from that experience. I learned how precious it is to have people around you who can connect with you in that way, who, can, who see how the connections in the present moment are the most important and how that can be of, of use to you as you make your transition. Oh, and so for me, hospital work is the most difficult because these people are really struggling with the existential reality of humankind. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to die? What does it mean to be sick? What does it mean? And I don't have the answer, so I have to listen. I have to listen, and I have to be present. And one of the hardest things about being a volunteer is you're not allowed to look at it as a job. You can't put the armor on and say, this is just something that I do. You have to go in each time and let your heart be broken. You've got to let your heart be broken, because that's when the love comes out. That's when you have the connection with the other person in a direct way. We have now cut through the intellectual. We have cut through the discourse. We are now two hearts looking at each other, naked, raw. And it hurts. And I have never cried so much as I have in the last 10 years because there are no answers. There are just people suffering. And I'm there to say, well, there are some things you can do to suffer less. And if you're really good, you can end your suffering for good. Now, I was invited to join the police department as a chaplain as well. I'd given a talk in Garden Grove at the mayor's prayer breakfast. And, and the story I like to say about that is when they asked me if I'd speak at the mayor's prayer breakfast, I said, well, I don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. <laughs> And is that okay? And I said, that would be wonderful. 
just come down and tell us about Buddhism. So I went down and I talked about Buddhism and I brought my harmonica and I played a harmonica tune. And they said, wow, this is so cool. And then the police chief's office called me a week later and said, would you like to join our chaplain's program? We're trying to expand and diversify and we think you'd be perfect. And I said, I would like to do that. I've been behind bars as a volunteer now <laughs> for, for six years. <laughs> So another lengthy background check, and I got fitted for my very own bulletproof vest. I have, I have a chaplain's hat. I have a chaplain's jacket. It says chaplain on the back. I have black slacks and a polo shirt that I wear. Pretty impressive. And, and I was told the reason I have chaplain all over my body is because I'm identified as the good guy. And... And so chances are they won't shoot me first. Uh, but my feeling is if they're an atheist, I'm the one that gets it first. So far, so good. But what have I learned about being a chaplain and being of service in the police department? Has anybody seen the movie 300? Okay, a few. Cool. That was, you know, that was such a great movie. I felt like such a guy after that movie. You know, I, I wanted my own loincloth and spear, you know? And that six-pack for the abs looked good, too. I think I'm past that, but... But they were warriors. They were trained as warriors. They were brought up as warriors. Spartan women gave birth to Spartan men who became warriors. And, and these policemen and women are the warriors of 2007. Every day they get into that car, and they go out into the community, and they may not come back and yet they still get in the car. And nobody ever calls the police when things are great. They always call them when things are going terrible. And they go in, and they have to make sense of that. They have to define it for the people living it. How can I break this cycle? A lot of domestic disputes when you're a police chaplain. You go in and you see how difficult it is for two human beings to live together. And people think, I got it bad because I'm celibate. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's difficult. There's, so, so here it is. I see suffering with the police department. I see suffering in juvenile hall. I see suffering in the hospital. And I see suffering in the prisons. And now I'm invited a year or so ago to go to Huntington Beach and talk about my volunteer work. And I had the good stories, and I was ready to give my presentation. And I went up, and I gave my presentation, and this woman raised her hand, and she said, but Kusla, why do you, why do you volunteer? You know, I, I know why Christians volunteer, and I know why Hindus volunteer, but, but why do you volunteer? And, and I had never been asked that question. I had never really given it much thought. I just answered the phone. <laughs> you know? And, and so I had to be honest with her and said, I don't know. Well, there was a shock. The whole audience was there because they were volunteers. And here I was as a volunteer, and I didn't know why I was a volunteer. And so I sort of left them in confusion as well as being confused myself. Well, why am I a volunteer? I said to myself, what's the point? Am I going to change the world? Probably not. Am I going to save the world? Never. Am I being a better person for it? Probably not. I'm just crying a lot more than I ever used to. <laughs> you know, so, so why do I volunteer? And, and finally, two weeks later, 
while I was meditating. It just came out of my subconscious into my conscious, and I knew. I knew why I was a volunteer. I was a volunteer because people suffer. That's it. If people don't suffer, they don't need me as a volunteer. So, how long will I have to volunteer? I think for a really long time. (laughs) Because people are suffering. And so I was very much a reluctant bodhisattva. I didn't want to walk down that path of service. I knew how difficult it was going to be. I knew how how much time it would take. And I knew I would never be able to say I've succeeded at anything because there's always somebody else suffering. And to make the point, I received a call three weeks ago from a woman who had come to my UCLA meditation classes with the Buddhist club. And she said, Reverend Kusla, I have a proposition for you. And I said, well, okay. She said, I work at the Getty Museum. And we're suffering. (laughs) Would you be willing to come down and teach us meditation? Some of the employees, just between the employees and you. And we have something called the spa, which is right below the the Getty Museum. And they have like a yoga workout room. And they have uh, sauna and showers and all the machines, Stairmasters and all that kind of stuff. And, And we could send out some emails and we could invite employees to come. And you could teach us how to meditate. And that might reduce some of our stress. And, you know, for me personally, the last place I would think there'd be stress would be a museum. I would think there'd be boredom, you know. (laughs) But I wouldn't think stress. So for three weeks now, I'm going back tomorrow. Tomorrow morning is the third session. And you know what they call the spa at the Getty? They call it Spaghetti. It's true. I couldn't make that up. It's right on the door. So to end my presentation, I would like to do something to challenge myself again, as if I don't have enough challenges already. I would like to just sing a little tune, something that I've sort of changed the the lyrics just a smidge, just changed the order of the lyrics. And I would like to use my mandolin with my Jimi Hendrix shoulder strap. (laughs) Because Jimi was cool. Very cool. Okay, this is this is by Dylan, and this is a this is this is blowing in the wind, but I've changed it just a smidge to sort of fit in with what I've talked to you about today. And here we go. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand And how many years 
can a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? Oh, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Answer is blowing in the wind. How many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? And how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? And how many times can a man turn his head Pretending he just doesn't see Well, the answer, my friend, is blowing The answer is blowing in the wind 